And a very good morning to you. We're live from London and Zurich. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, my panellists Enrico Franceschini and Vincent McAvinney will be dissecting the week's main stories. Vincent joins us from our Zurich studio. Guten morning. Guten morgen, Vinny. How's life where you are and what have you spotted? Good morning. It's very nice and sunny here in Zurich today. Two things that really stood out for me in the papers. Uh, if you've travelled anywhere across Europe, you will be familiar, of course, with the local city hotel taxes you have to pay. The UK, though, uh, has never done this before, but it's introducing them in Manchester for the first time. And I've been on the mountains in Austria, and the weather has definitely been mixed this ski season, and I experienced that myself uh, this week. And there's a great story in the New York Times about how they are sort of running out of places that can host the Winter Olympics and it's causing big headaches for the IOC. Enrico, what have you spotted? Well, first of all, a law in Italy for uh, um, sanctioning people if they speak English up to 100,000 euros, something like 90,000 pounds. If they say any any word in English, it applies only to government uh, employees, but still is making a steer in our country. And uh, the Pope is feeling better. He came, he came out of uh, the hospital after a few days of uh, respiratory problems, saying, I'm still alive. Good for that. Thank you very much indeed, Enrico. We'll be checking in with our editorial director, Tyler Brule, who's in Tokyo, and we'll get the latest from Tyler magazine's editorial director Christoph Armand too. It's the 2nd of April 2023 live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. So spring is springing here in London and in Zurich too. Let me bring in today's panellists. Uh, Enrico Franceschini, who's a London correspondent for La Repubblica, is here in London. Good morning. Good buongiorno. Good morning. Buongiorno. And in our Zurich studio, Vincent McAvinney, political journalist and Monocle 24 regular, normally over here, but now has hot-footed it over to the Zurich, eh? Yeah, that's right. After 10 years in Monocle, I've made it to the uh, sister studio in Zurich, finally. And, and fine it is too. How's, Zurich, how's Du Fuhrstrasse 90 looking this morning? It is lovely. It's nice and sunny. It's getting a little bit warmer. It's uh, a good day. It will be a lovely day in Zurich. Deeply jealous. Uh, jealous also, Enrico, of the fact that you've just been on tour in Italy, haven't you? Tell us Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Well, I've been around uh, doing book presentations of, my, of, of a couple of books of mine. And one was uh, a new experience. I took uh, 45 women on a tour of Romagna near Rimini on the Adriatic coast, where I, where, which is the scene, uh, the place of uh, some of my thriller novels of a, a journalist who retired and becomes uh, a detective. So I took these women to Rimini, to Cesenatico, to Sant'Arcangelo, to several uh, Cesena, to an ancient uh, um, uh, monastery, to, to all the places that uh, appear in my books. And uh, we had fun, we had great meals also. I must confess, I never realised I was in the presence of a literary sex symbol. Well, I never realised it myself. I I still doubt it. But, uh, you know, it was a fun experience. So tell us, you you, you write your own biography of 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 being a correspondent, but also you are a thriller writer. Yes, uh, it's it's a series about, uh, as I said, the journalist who retires since discovers he could be a detective. Uh, with his old uh, friends from school, they're all in their over sixties, and they they love to eat, they love to chat, they love to joke, and in the meantime, a murder happens. Uh, Finney, I want to sign up to Enrico's party bus. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great fun. <laughs> 
does it have to you have to be a woman can we all can no, we all no. can Vinny some, join as well some men are allowed all right I, i'm i'm very generous are they <laughs> are they wildly jealous when they see all their wives sort of fainting when Signor Franceschini no, walks in? Well, we are all uh, pensioners, sort of, <laughs> so they're not too jealous, I must say. They just uh, readjust the pacemaker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just turn it up a bit. <laughs> Vinny, how have you been? Have you been making, making hearts go flutter this week? No, I've been uh, skiing for the first time in five years, of course. The pandemic delayed a lot of people getting back on the slopes uh, and it's been a really great week, although the weather has been completely and utterly mixed. Uh, we've had rain for the first time. We've never really had proper rain while skiing. Uh, we've had sort of a sunny day and absolute whiteouts on some days. It seems, uh, it's from talking to people in uh, in the resort in St Anton, it's been a very mixed and difficult season for lots of ski resorts. Um, and experience in terms of what way? I mean, do they feel as if they've come out of this, or the, you know, that this is the final final section of the of the season, isn't it? But do people feel as if they will have come out of it um, with a decent season, having had? I mean, we've had repeated reports of what's going on out there, and you know, creating snow and people skiing in puddles. I think it's raising real concerns about which of the resorts in in Europe are going to be viable in just a few years' time. If you can no longer guarantee uh, the climate uh, and the conditions that are needed and the huge energy involved uh, in producing and manufacturing snow and keeping it for months time it is going to affect these towns and they're going to have to look for alternative uh, ways that they can keep themselves going uh, and this is one of the stories that's really jumped out on me uh, this weekend from the new york uh, times international edition uh, about how it's causing real headaches uh, for the olympics for the winter olympics because it's completely narrowing down the pool of places that can actually host because they can guarantee the weather uh, on top of all the other problems that having an olympics has now kind of got going with it such as it being very expensive and sometimes quite controversial for a country which might have a slightly checkered human rights record. Um, let's bring in our editorial director, Tyler Brule, who's, who's in ex- exploring a nice afternoon in Tokyo. Hello, Tyler. How are you? Good morning, Emma. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Um, we were just talking there, Vinny was talking about, A, the, the readiness of a country for uh, for an Olympic Games and also the reopening of a of one of the ski season um, post-COVID. Um, two things that I suspect are probably quite relevant in Tokyo at the moment as, as we have the reopening happening. And do tell us what cherry blossom season is like, please. Well, cherry blossom season is lovely, but also I think just picking up on the topic of Yes, withering resorts in, in Europe. One of the interesting things in, in Japan is that people who are familiar with Nisako will know that this is, of course, uh, a resort which is renowned for its you know, deep powder. When you drive to the resorts in Hokkaido, you can sort of, you can have snow banks that are you know, four or five meters high. So this seems to be a place which is uh, reasonably uh, climate-proof for now. Uh, and, and, and also you see a huge surge, almost you know, a new generation of skiers that we didn't know or that really were not sort of, you know, uh, familiar with, with this type of holiday, uh, flying in from Malaysia, flying in from Singapore, Thailand. So I guess while we have problems uh, in, in Europe and maybe in resorts in North America, um, there is a different focus. And I think that this is something which Japan wants to really exploit. And we've seen, of course, Hokkaido on one side, but I think now we also see a lot of resorts in, in, in um, uh, on, on northern Honshu as well, up around Nagano, etc., also trying to push themselves uh, as, as resorts. And also, and this is what's happening in Europe, 
how do these places redefine themselves as as year-round destinations, not just relying on a snowy season? It's an interesting thing. I mean, how, how do they approach it? I mean, I'll bring in Enrico in a moment because, you know, as an Italian, you will know very full, full well about how to create an all-round uh, an all-round uh, tourism destination. But, but Tyler, what are they doing to try to reinvent themselves or to make themselves, a, you know, welcoming 12 months of the year? Well, I think if we look from a European perspective and part of the story in Switzerland and, and elsewhere is is very much focused on the summer season and, and then also moving away from seasonality in and of itself, that, that these should be places that are, are open 12 months a year, that you don't have this pause across October, November, even into December and, and in springtime. We, we touched on this a little bit, Emma, when we were broadcasting, uh, you were touching, or you were touching down with us in Samaritz, and, and this means also creating a, a metabolism as well within these communities where you don't have the brain drain or the, or the service drain, where people have to suddenly go to the Mediterranean or, or elsewhere. And I think already you see that some of the Japanese resorts are, are maybe almost fortifying themselves against, against this, looking at bringing in international schools. Uh, so again, you know, some of the big names in, in Southeast Asia, which oftentimes are franchises from British schools, there is this idea that, well, why don't you actually create uh, yeah, an academic environment where, of course, students are going to be there for nine months of the year where families can come and visit. So this is, I think, something which is happening. So we move away from seasonality and, and creating vitality uh, across the 12 months. Enrico, can I bring, briefly bring you in on this one? What yes. can Japan learn from Italy here? Well, if we speak about skiing, the, the next Winter Olympics are going to be in Cortina and Milan, which is not in the mountains, but will uh, host some of the of the games. And so these are places that, are, of course, have an uh, all-year-round uh, uh, destinations, because Milan, not, not to mention all the masterpieces of Leonardo, you can see there many reasons to go, fashion, business. And, and Cortina, like several other others um, uh, resorts in the Italian Alps uh, may, may might not be open 12 months but definitely six or seven because in the summer they are full of tourists uh, they are beautiful beautiful trekkings uh, and then so they are on their way to expanding their availability so it sounds like everywhere Tyler is on the up or everywhere is moving um you you've been hot footing it quite astonishingly over the last few days I think you've just done Dubai and to-, to Tokyo via goodness knows how many places I think it's two or three what's your sense because you, you're now becoming a much more regular visitor back out there again one feels as if that you know the, the the trajectory is we're back we're back to the good old days when it comes to you hot footing it around the world well at least from my side but indeed i mean when uh, since we spoke last uh sunday emma i was i was in singapore i was in bangkok i was in hong kong uh, and, and now in Tokyo. But, you know, there is that, that window, and I think we discussed this, we brought this up with our uh, bureau chief here in Fiona when we've had some uh, check-ins with her as well, and, and that, that we sort of talked about maybe there was going to be a window to go and have Japan to yourself, you know, maybe leading into summer. Well, that's over because when I landed yesterday, it just felt like all of the U.S. had descended, plus Hong Kong moving into Easter holidays, etc. They're all in Japan. They're all here for Sakura season. There were 30-minute uh, lines uh, at immigration, despite digitization in Japan. Uh, nothing has really sort of changed in terms of, of weights to get into the airport. And you just feel that Asia is very much on the move. And, and so that if, if any of our listeners were thinking, oh, you know, we, I can get to Japan and it's not going to be so busy, forget it. Uh, it it's absolutely rammed. 
Oh dear. Oh well, that moment came and went and we didn't even see it. Um, What you did see was Hong Kong and some lovely new discoveries. Well, new and old because, you know, a a new little club and a beautiful little hotel, but designed by a name that we all know very well here at Monocle. Indeed. Uh, I'd heard much about uh, the... Carlisle and, and company, and or Carlisle and Co. as they call it. Now, uh, of course, regular travelers will know that uh, the Rosewood Group out of Hong Kong, they purchased uh, the Carlisle, they're running the Carlisle um, in New York, and they've done something quite interesting. So at the Rosewood in Hong Kong, which is really, because it's at, it's at the home base, this is their, their global flagship in many ways, they've taken, they've carved out three floors of the hotel, and they've created this hotel within a hotel. They rather cleverly commissioned Ilsa Crawford to look at all of the interiors and create this amazing space. There's eight bedrooms, and then you have, there's a a small cabaret, there's an amazing karaoke room, there's a fantastic brasserie, there's a sprawling bar, there's a great terrace overlooking Victoria Harbor, amazing amazing event rooms, wonderful uniforms, a barber shop, you know, a great tailors. And it just, it feels like you know, in many ways, Tokyo reinvented for the 21st century, but at the same, sorry, I said, I should say Hong Kong uh, uh, reinvented for the 21st century, but also it's, um, it, it's got a freshness and you can see that this is probably a business model that is going to work very well elsewhere. It seems to be absolutely sort of be all encompassing for, 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 for someone's needs. Um, what's on the karaoke list in Hong Kong? What's currently riding high in the karaoke ch- charts? Well, well, there was there was a number of Canto Pop numbers which I'm not very familiar with, but I have to say that uh, our our colleagues uh, from uh, our Hong Kong retail operations, God, they can belt out a tune and. Uh, and, and put our Swiss and, and uh, other other colleagues to shame. The, the stakes were very, very high uh, in, in a very impressive setting as, as well. So, um, no, it was, um, as I said, I, I can't name check any of the counterpop songs, but uh, they did a very, very good job. A little bit of Japanese as well. That's a project for the rest of 2023, isn't it? Um, finally, um, seeing as you are in Tokyo, you're on a bit of a recruitment drive, so I better let you go in a minute. Yes, and in fact, I am on a bit of a, a recruitment drive, and I should sort of mention two things. There's a recruitment drive because uh, we have on April 15th, uh, it's going to be our Hanami market. So Sakura season should be running a little bit longer in Switzerland uh, than it is here uh, in Japan, also because we've had a bit of a cold snap, as we have over much of Europe at the moment. So uh, the, the, the cherry trees are hanging in there. Our Hanami market in Zurich, Emma, it brings together a variety of great food stalls, uh, you know, a series of great uh, brands. Japanese-related, both internationally uh, and and also with a bit of a Swiss or or Middle European base as well. That's happening. Um, And then there's also another level of recruitment as well, because tomorrow, I don't know if we've been talking about it, but it's a big day at Monocle 24, which rebrands tomorrow. We are, we, I know, we re-emerge like a a wonderful butterfly after a chrysalis. We stop being Monocle 24, don't we? We do. So we become Monocle Radio. So listeners, don't be alarmed. It'll be the, uh, the same... Uh, station that you've loved for over uh, a decade, but we, we've had a bit of a, a freshen up. There's a series of, of new tunes and sounds that we've been working with our friends from the Quiet Nights Orchestra, uh, the Blue Toucan, who've done a lot of the jingles. So, you know, in many ways, it's Emma. It's almost like the reinvention of of the magazine. I think over the years, where we've had a fresh up of the magazine after a decade, you, there's been some jingles, as as listeners know, that have changed. We've we've brought in new voices, but this is quite a significant uh, overhaul. So we see the introduction of new partners, some new programs coming in, um, but there's overall a a new sound. So in many ways, I've I've been sort of likening it to. 
you know, it's like the frame of the magazine, the way that Monocle has a, a, bra- a black frame, the way that we, of course, played with the, the masthead over the years. This is a little bit of the, um, the, the same thing. So the ends of hours sound diff- a little bit different. Uh, and it's, um, I, I, it, it, I have to say, it sounds, it still has a, an elegance to it. Uh, I would certainly hope so, but uh, there's also a bit of, um, there's a bit of seriousness. Some, and, and I would say a little bit of a, a kind of a retro authoritative sound, but I'll, I'll leave that to you. I think you've probably heard most of the jingles uh, and, and overall elements as well. I have, and I'll agree with you. They have a slightly more serious tone to them. They do. And, and this was, uh, I think, I think that's also the evolution of maybe it's a reflector of the world that we're in as well. But uh, our flagship programs, uh, of course, uh, The Globalist, uh, The Briefing, The Daily, um, and, and other franchises that we're looking at, again, people will recognize them, uh, but they have a slightly uh, different tone. I do think the ends of the hours, though, so the class, we say, when we say ends of the hours, what we call the 59s, when we, when we have that sort of countdown from 59 to the top of the hour, uh, that is a little, I think that's a little bit funkier than where we are. So there's, there's a bit of lightness to it as well, and... Uh, you like a bit of French pop, and uh, and this, of course, was uh, a little bit of um, uh, an engineering and, and rewriting project by our, our, our Toucan friends uh, in, in Paris. It is tremendously exciting, Tyler. We can't wait to relaunch tomorrow, though I must confess I'll have trouble trying to get, unpick 11 years of saying Monocle 24. I know. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a couple of a couple of slip ups uh, as well. And uh, as we've been sending out proposals and everything, I've had the red pan out correcting people. It's, you know, Flashing the 24 and, uh, and, and of course, uh, re- rewriting radio. But good luck with everything tomorrow, and um, I'm sure we'll be chatting. Tyler, can't wait to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from Tokyo. That was our editorial director, Tyler Brule, in Tokyo. You are with Monaco on Sunday. After that whistle-stop tour from Tyler, Enrico, tell us what news from Italy. Well... As uh, I mentioned, I would start with this, is, which sounds, it's a news that came out on April 1st, so you might think it's an April Fool. But it's actually true, um, unfortunately. Uh, uh, there is a, a law, a proposed law by the government, the center-right, or actually right-right government uh, in power in Italy right now, led by, uh, for the first time by a woman, Giorgia Meloni, uh, that uh, to penalize uh, with uh, a money sanction uh, government employees that uh, use uh, uh, English words. Uh, the, the sanction is quite serious, goes from 5,000 euros to 100,000 euros, which is the highest one, is in around 90,000 uh, pounds, one of the reasons is that the, the, this government, this rightist government, is taking a more nationalistic uh, uh, take on uh, politics, on cultural life, on everything. And so they say, we are Italians, we are supposed to speak Italian. Tell us a little bit about where English is now figuring in, in official language. The, yes, the fact well, was that I have, a, I have a dictionary, I have a French dictionary from 1992. I am that old. And it doesn't have the words internet or mobile phone or yes. WhatsApp or anything of that. It's a actually a piece of history and the world has been saturated with generic terms which just so happen to be English so are they going to have to put a different you know the Italian for phone or for, for that kind of stuff in? Uh, not not to that extent in the sense that uh, um, of course internet stays internet nobody's going to 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 pay a fee because uh, a sanction because they say internet but uh, and we will have 
we will have to see if this law passes, if it is approved, how it is in the end. But it is true that compared to other European countries, Italy has an enormous amount of English words that are used on television on, in, on day, day by day. Uh, I give you a few examples. We say location, influencer, flyer question time, rumors, and even some funny expressions like uh, uh, newspapers uh, use uh, the word uh, smart working for what uh, here you say home working. Uh, and, and they think that everybody is saying smart working in the English world, while this is not the case. Um, so it's a mix of provincialism in my way, in my view, and nationalism at, at the same time. Uh, they underline that some, some words are still allowed. For example, we, uh, the people are still allowed, the government and police still allowed to say bar. They don't have to say, I don't know, cafe. <laughs> or they're still allowed to say made in Italy, not fatto in Italia or prodotto in Italia. Fine, that's okay. I find the idea of rumor quite funny because that comes from an Italian word anyway, noise. Exactly. So it's coming I mean, back round and biting itself on the nose. Um, Vinny, I mean, your thoughts on this, please. I mean, I know that you're, you're pretty involved in the French language and, I, and you know, the Académie Française wrestles with this regularly. Mm. Um, I think it was last year that they decided that you weren't allowed to use eSports. They had to, you had to replace it with uh, much longer, I think, a video games of competition, something lengthy and a bit more of a mouthful. It's the mouthful bit that, that we all have, we all struggle with, isn't it? Because when you start to translate something into its, into its sort of like its literal language, yeah. it, it just takes a little while longer to say. Yeah, I mean, I remember the classic example that we always got told uh, when I was learning French was that, that you could not say le man because it just sounded so bad. And that was, you know, it was uh, particularly words for modern devices. Uh, the French were always so keen to to change them, to stop them. Uh, and some of them were sort of brand names like, like Walkman was, but they just thought it was such an ugly word to say in French that they were pretty hot on it. But it's so tricky when you've got kind of the rapid pace of technology, you know, words we've been talking about even five years ago that we weren't even talking about like influencer just now that wasn't really used in the context it was today it is a lot to keep up with it is so interesting from you know from a english-speaking point of view um there is no equivalent really to it you know there there's if anyone that's ever set up a you know a word processor on a computer knows you know you have different listings you've got english us english uk uh we're sort of much less precious about uh, the english language in the uk because i think it's such a you know it's a language that really evolves uh but we also have the kind of slight domination of of us kind of cultural phrases and things that come in but we we don't seem to get our sort of backup as much but then again you know it isn't the imposition of another language in our own language the, the interesting thing here um Enrico is the fact that this is a, a decision made by a political party yes that it's not for the sake of preserving what is essentially a pretty lovely language in itself well, yes, the language is lovely, but uh, in in a way there are more serious things to take care of in Italy. I mean, the, the government has lots of problems, and and as I said, if this was coming, as you as you noticed, from a cultural association, uh, from an university, it would have been different. That the government uh, now takes the time to pass a law uh, prohibiting uh, employees from using uh, certain English words, it's a bit funny, but. 
we must say France has had in the course of the last 20 years uh, similar battles, similar cultural battles. Uh, um, I'm not sure if there was a law and I'm not, I don't think there was a, a fine of 100,000 euros <laughs> if you violate it. Uh, well, as you said, it's more political than cultural. It sounds view. like it, it's a procure for the creation of an enormous amount of delicious Italian paperwork. Exactly. <laughs> Vinny, what are your th- what are your thoughts on the you know the, the fact that if I don't know if you if you're British you find yourself um, absorbing brand new words um, the whole time and I find myself wondering what lots of people's job titles are and what uh, lots of <laughs> roles are that actually the English language is really good at creating nonsensical words which don't have much of a meaning but we all recognise them but I don't know if you feel the same way that I do that there are so many words in English which are which we recognise but we don't fully understand in terms of meaning. I think that's true. I think as well, English has slightly lower standards in terms of adoptions of new words. I think the general rule for the Oxford Dictionary is that it only has to be published in three separate places, uh, and then it can be entered as an official word. And so at the end of each year in the UK, you do get a list of new words that have made it into the dictionary. And there's always a kind of word of the year, a kind of most used word. Um, I think it's natural that language flows and it evolves and it changes. But yeah, I do think, to come back to your point, it's dubious job titles. I mean, some of the ones that you see floating around LinkedIn, you do have to wonder what exactly they do day to day. Yes, I've always said you don't have an interactive hot drink beverage experience. You go and buy a cup of coffee. <laughs> Enrico, tell us. I wanted to say that uh, on the other end, some of the Italian language is taking over, has been taking over England, the UK for a long time. I mean, we have, uh, of course, pizza, uh, pasta, Mamma mia, I mean, you're learning Italian uh, to... All the coffee uh, phrases, you know, avente. Yeah, grande, cappuccino, or, yeah, latte, cappuccino. all that. I know, it's, well, it's, the, the, there's the article that discusses this um, this um, tussle in Italy. It's saying that they're now actually having to teach people, um, you know, that lovely toasted um, little bit of bread that you have a bit of tomato on before you start your dinner, bruschetta. Apparently, everyone's calling it bruschetta now in Italy, and the and the grammar pedants are going bananas. Well, I, I have not heard anybody saying bruschetta. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think sit- as well. Sorry, I think one of the things that kind of keeps words out like that a little bit out of English and us taking it too seriously is that you just end up sounding like Del Boy from the kind of classic comedy Only Fools and Horses. You know, you you know, mange tu, mange tu. You know, adopting (laughs) foreign phrases into English just sounds a bit silly sometimes. I suppose so. I suppose so. I'm still trying to. I do bristle when I hear bruschetta. I'm such a pedant. Anyway, it's fun that we can share languages uh, all around the world. In my, this is our global world. I love the fact that every single thing that you mentioned as an international word was in fact food Enrico that's <laughs> well, that, that's something it. about me being an Italian well it's I think um, isn't it isn't um, hasn't the culture and agriculture department entered Italian cuisine as a as a UNESCO World Heritage Site status yes I mean frankly I would love to go to that Italian World Heritage Site if it is nothing but Italian food yes yes I mean food is our flag what, what can we say <laughs> together with I said mamma mia mamma mamma is very important the mother in Italy you know don't touch it don't talk to those ladies on the bus <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> Finny what's the view from Zurich this morning what have you spotted well, a couple of stories. I mean, if there is no getting away, I think we've, we've both listed this uh, as a, an interesting story today. But of course, Trump expected to 
hand himself over effectively uh, to the courts on Tuesday afternoon for this indictment in New York. He is the first president to ever be indicted on a criminal charge uh, in history. So that's twice impeached, once indicted. There could be more indictments coming, particularly of interest is the Georgia one. Uh, And I think New York on Tuesday is going to be a bit of a circus. Uh, But the article that stood out for me this weekend was in the Times of London. And it was a really long and thoughtful interview with Stormy Daniels, who is, of course, the woman at the heart of this story. We all know the background. Uh, She uh, had an alleged affair with uh, Donald Trump in 2006. Shortly before the election in 2016, uh, the Trump team paid her off in alleged hush money. uh, And it subsequently came out that that can be in violation of of campaigning laws in the US. And she gives a really interesting interview where she says, you know, she's had many years now of 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 facing up to this of being called every name under the sun but in the past couple of days the the level of threat is really stepping up against her uh, and law enforcement uh, is helping her out uh, but she's someone who just is completely undaunted she she's very you know savvy she says you know no one even if they're an ex-president is above the law uh, and she finally says uh, when she's asked uh, about the prospect of facing trump in court which is potentially something that might happen uh, I've seen him naked. There's no way he could be scarier with his clothes on. I don't think we need to know that, Vinny, but thank <laughs> you very much indeed. Um, Enrico, again, going using Italy as a benchmark, your, your country is quite good at having quite... Sex and politics. Thank you. <laughs> Back on that bus. Um, that, that idea of having uh, a dubious leader in charge who yes, has his, yes. his morals are quite, uh, you know, a, a questionable, dare we say, to even start. Uh, yes. If, if we think backwards, actually, we were the inventors of this new <laughs> type of politics of dubious leaders. I mean, Berlusconi was really the first. Uh, every, everything else, uh, Trump, uh, uh, Bolsonaro, Boris Johnson, everybody came in the mold of Berlusconi maybe with a bit less money, which, uh, speaking of sex, uh, I mean, uh, even Trump didn't have the imagination of Berlusconi, who used to call the dinners uh, with, uh, you know, 20 escorts uh, at his palace. uh, uh, Each of them found when they left uh, an envelope with 5,000 euros inside and a little piece of jewelry, uh, a little butterfly, and he used to call them elegant. They were just elegant dinners. Berlusconi used to say there was nothing improper about it. Elegant dinners, which was also called in the by the newspapers and by himself the bunga bunga nights. You know, bunga bunga doesn't mean anything, but it's become like a metaphor for well, sex. Uh, Thanks, um, <laughs> Vinny. I mean, there is that idea, isn't it, that, that that Trump lacks the style, dare I say, it, of Berlusconi, and he's got the same quite baroque approach to hair for starters. <laughs> yeah, the cosmetic surgery definitely something they share. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you know, but uh, he was Berlusconi, uh, you know, a charmer, former, of course, famously uh, cruise ship singer, wasn't he? Like to belt out the tune still. Donald Trump is 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 not one to take, you know, a mic for singing himself. Uh, he is though apparently uh, now sort of resident DJ. 
DJ was detail that I love that's come out at his Mar-a-Lago club and apparently all he does is put um, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion on all the time every night which is which is quite funny but he does have serious problems now racking up I think the, the New York uh, indictment is going to cause him a headache uh, it is going to be uh, you know a circus he's someone who's defied the gravity of kind of responsibility particularly in courts of law for, for decades now but the one that's coming down the track that is going to be fascinating is the Georgia indictment potentially which is about the phone calls that he made to uh, sort of the the kind of operatives in the the state who were in charge of, of running the election who were themselves Republicans where he just sort of said you know I need you to find X number of votes for me uh, and it was a really crucial state in the election and, and if he is uh, and other associates as well involved in that are indicted on that I think that could be the charge that really is serious but of course in the background of all of this uh, clocks are ticking he is still the front runner to be the uh, Republican candidate for the 2024 uh, election his only real competition at the moment it seems is Ron DeSantis who if anyone is actually you know there's a lot of talk about Ron DeSantis but if anyone's actually watched him speak give a speech or any kind of event he is really uncharismatic um and you know he he's sort of tried to and actually has quite a weird voice as well and i think you know it would be remarkable if donald trump is both fighting an election uh, and going back and forth between courts in in well he definitely will be in new york now but in georgia and potentially other states as well we may well come back to this in a little while, but you're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and let's head to Berlin to find out what's making headlines in Die Zeit. I'm happy to say we're hearing from Christoph Armand, editorial director of Zeit magazine. A very good morning to you, Christoph. Good morning, Emma from Berlin. How is Berlin looking this morning? Well, a bit grey. It's a, it's the, the, the spring hasn't really arrived, um, but we're trying to cope with the weather. But actually... The weather is quite British. I was quite sorry for King Charles during his visit, but I guess I guess he's used to that kind of rain. I was, I was about to say, I'm sure he wouldn't have noticed a thing. Um, I think we were all quite impressed <laughs> with King Charles this week, suddenly rocking up and delivering some pretty fluent German, although quite brilliantly in his customary stilted English accent. You still heard Charles throughout his speech. Oh yeah, I mean we were all very impressed. I mean he's he's been visiting Germany for dozens of times, but I think it was the first uh, British um, king to actually ha- have a speech in German Bundestag in the Parliament, and uh, he only struggled with the word Ukraine because he kept like trying to pronounce it in English, but actually corrected himself twice. But we were really impressed, and then he went from Berlin to Hamburg on the train. And um, a big surprise for all German customers of Deutsche Bahn was that it actually arrived and left uh, at the right time. And they even offered him a a great selection of tea, which I think Deutsche Bahn could um, turn into a regular service for all their customers. So we could have the King Charles compartment where you get tea and punctuality. (laughs) That would be the perfect deal where everyone in Germany would be very thankful to the king. 
Tell us a little bit about um, British soft power. It's not it's not had the best um, best of times in the last few years, um, and and Germany hasn't been you know has has been quite clear in it in the way that it is sending its directions. But when you have a monarch who comes up and fluently speaks a foreign language such as German, which is not commonly learned here in the UK, and he hops on a train and he has a cup of tea. What does that suddenly do for for Germany's reaction to the, to, to the way that the UK is, is is positioning itself internationally? Well, I, I think sort of on an emotional level, it really helps because he. I think the the, the three days he and Camilla spend in Germany really went well, and uh, I talked to uh, a Hamburg-based musician who's also doing. Beatle tours in Hamburg, Stephanie Hempel, who was invited by uh, the, the state of Hamburg to play some Beatles cover versions for the King. And she's, she's, she just told me yesterday, she's very happy about the chat that she was having with the two. And um, so I think, yeah, I think it can really help on a sort of, on an emotional level. And you also have the fact that he didn't go to France first, and that became more of a story here in the United Kingdom, arguably. Um, dare I say, dare I use that German word, Schadenfreude? <laughs> well, I, I was trying to make some appointments in Paris that week when, when Charles was supposed to go there as well, and everyone was cancelling every meeting in Paris. So, you know, there's no Schadenfreude. It's just I hope that the French get over this uh, as soon as possible. Tell us while you were in Paris, Christophe. Uh, why? Yeah. Yeah, I was just meeting some uh, fashion brands and um, to talk about what we're doing with Zeit Magazine at the moment. Um, you know, we just uh, published a new issue of Zeit Magazine Mann with the French actor uh, Vincent uh, Cassel. So I would have been happy to talk about that with our French friends. Uh, so tell us about Vincent Cassel then. Uh, well, it, it was it was really a nice meeting with him. It was a bit difficult to actually meet him because he was going back and forth from to America and France and and then took a few days to actually nail him down in Paris. But then he arrived 15 minutes earlier, uh, was in a great mood, and we talked about... Um, uh, the, his his time when he went to New York when he was 17 with his mother and that he really sort of realized that he's French in New York for the first time. You know, he missed Eddie Piaf and Camembert and uh, the Montmartre and everything. But on the other hand, he realized that the energy and of New York City really fitted his way of living. And when he went back to Paris after his time in New York, he he realized, oh, maybe it's it's France, you know, maybe it's the tempo, the rhythm of Paris that is a bit slower than his own. And he's not really crazy, which he thought before. Christoph, what's uh, on the cards for the for the next week in Berlin? Well, um, maybe, maybe Charles uh, could have a comeback and uh, we, we'll, we will maybe provide him with better weather, I'm, I'm hoping. I th I'm sure he would be very welcomed. Christoph, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Berlin. That was Zeit Magazine's editorial director, Christoph Armand in Berlin. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Monocle's springy April issue includes our retail survey. Here we rate the retailers, CEOs and shops improving the cities they call home. We tour a New York bookshop that's starting a new chapter 
and meet the CEO reviving Helsinki's best department store. Elsewhere, we visit a Spanish enclave bordering Morocco, head to the runway for the final Boeing 747 delivery in Washington, and hit the dance floor in Barcelona. You'll also find plenty of fashion tips in our annual style survey, plus plenty of travel and hospitality picks to put a spring in your step this season. Order your copy of Monocle's April issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. The time in Zurich is 10.39. Here in London, it's 9.39. Let's head to Zurich. Vincent, Vinny, Macavinny, what's, mm-hmm. uh, what's making the headlines where you are? Just to pick up before we go on to that last point, I mean, that was such an interesting trip that Charles did because, you know, for years, the British royal family, for decades, for obvious historical reasons, has tried to play down its German connections. Uh, And, you know, to to stand up in the Bundestag and speak German is, you know, obviously it's going to win you the audience there. Uh, But at home, there will have been real question marks about whether or not he he should have done that. You know, you think about Angela Merkel. I remember watching her address Parliament a few years ago, and she only spoke a few words of English, uh, but then kind of went into German and she gave a great speech. But the language and and what they do is interesting. So I think it's really interesting that he, that that trip ended up becoming the first one. Um, and obviously as well, you know, big moves to kind of improve European relations over the uh, past couple of years after Brexit. The royal family have been kind of sent to Europe a lot more than they previously had done. Uh, and they're sort of holding off on the first Commonwealth trip until after the coronation, because there are a lot of real issues around the world in different Commonwealth countries, question marks over the future. Uh, so they've sort of in one way, sort of played it safe going to, to Europe. But to have Germany actually become the first one, it's interesting historically for, for the United Kingdom. Of course, his mother, you know, having gone through the war, taking uh, the crown just after the war in, in the kind of wreckage of it all. Uh, it, it is an interesting kind of turning of the page uh, in history. Um, but turning elsewhere, uh, something that uh, travellers across the continent will be used to. Maybe Charles had to pay this himself. You normally, if you go to a city, have to pay a tourist tax in Europe for staying uh, and it goes into the sort of local economy, into the city's coffers to help fund uh, fund the goings-on. Uh, and the UK, though, has never done this. There's no part of the UK that's ever put in this local tax. Uh, but for the very first time, Manchester, which is a city in the northwest of England, is bringing in a £1 a night tourist tax, uh, which they think will raise about three million pounds a year and it's going to be put into uh, what they're calling an accommodation business improvement district uh, which is it'll be put into a fund to help sort of improve the visitor experience uh, and future growth of the visitor economy so more hotel rooms are going to put six thousand it's going to go into helping fund six thousand more new hotel rooms new conference facilities new entertainment facilities uh, and it's something that uk cities are looking at edinburgh which of course is very popular with the with the edinburgh festival and the fringe. Uh, It's looking at introducing a £2 a night one that just needs to get past the Scottish Parliament. The Welsh Government looking at it as well. And then cities like Oxford, Bath, uh, which of course are very popular with tourists, also looking at this. It has been looked at before by British cities, but has been rejected. Uh, But I think if you ask the the sort of vast majority of of British people, I think they would agree, yeah, why why not bring this in? You know, visitors are coming, they're enjoying the museums, they're enjoying uh, the galleries and uh, things that are free in Britain to British taxpayers. So it does make sense for people to have to, to drop a bit in. There is no 
great surprise in this elsewhere, is there, Enrico? It seems oh. a little bit strange that, that everybody so comes so late to the party here in the UK. Well, um, your, your uh, freeways are free in Italy and in other parts of uh, Europe. You have to pay for it. So um, it's part of a trend, perhaps. But, uh, but in Italy, we've had this tax for many years. People uh, complain a bit. They're not so happy about it because sometimes you pay separately. You pay the bill in a hotel. Then at the end, they say, oh, you have to pay this tax, sometimes in cash. Uh, some hotels want to think cash. You, you never know where this money goes. Sometimes it's two euros, three, four. But uh, over time, nobody complains. I mean, they, they've taken it as something. You can't do anything about it. We have In Italy, we are so used to so many taxes. They say, another tax. Brilliant. Um, and the fact that Manchester's starting it is, a, it's sort of, well, I'm from Manchester, so I can see why they do it. But it, it is that, that sort of spirit of enterprise and just making sure that um, it almost cements Manchester as a tourist destination, doesn't it? In a, in, a, in a way by saying, well, we're such a tourist destination, we need to tax you for it, Vinny. Yeah, of course. I mean, Manchester, in effect, is the sort of second city of uh, England or thinks it, it he likes to promote itself as sort of the second city of England. It, of course, has, you know, two giant football clubs that mean that you get lots of tourism to come uh, and see those. It has lots of great attractions and museums, of course, a rich uh, cultural music scene as well. Uh, and it has a Labour mayor, too, in Andy Burnham, who is trying to do things differently, trying to sort of lead the way in ways ways that London isn't doing uh, in terms of some of the environmental policies that he's pursuing, transport policies and this one as well. I think we will, in a couple of years, see pretty much all cities around the UK adopting this uh, and there being question marks about why they didn't do it sooner. Uh, let's move on to uh, another story that, uh, Enrico, what's caught your eye? Do We do have to mention the Pope because well, he's still alive, which I thought was one of the most wonderful messages ever <laughs> given by, by, well, actually anyone, frankly. I was, I was, I was delighted by that. Well, the, this Pope, uh, when he was just an elected Pope, when he came out 10 years ago on the balcony in Vatican Square, his first words were unusual because he said, instead of, uh, I bless you or something like that, he said, he just said, buonasera, good evening. Uh, uh, and then he said, please pray for me. And uh, it's been a very warm uh, character, very much loved, but it has its own enemies inside the Vatican because he's a reformer, he wants to change uh, many things, uh, and uh, that's why he said uh, these words uh, uh, coming out, I'm still alive, because as soon as he was uh, in the hospital, so suddenly, unexpectedly, uh, there were voices, oh, he, he might die, or he might have to resign as his predecessor. Um, and, uh, and so he wanted, to, the, there were uh, his adversaries inside the Vatican, the, the more re reactionary, conservative part of the of the Vatican, were just, you know, uh, taking position, how can we replace it, what can happen, and he wanted to say, I'm still here, guys. So they were, sta they were, starting, they were firing up the, uh, the the central heating in the Sistine Chapel, ready to elect his, a, a bit, uh, his successor. A bit too early, a bit too early, like Mark Twain uh, in famous phrase. I tell you what I like about Pope Francis is the fact that, you know, the, the reports that we get, Vinny, of, of when he was in 
Ill, when he was ill, yes, everyone went bananas because we thought this might be a major, major event. But the fact was that what we were told that he had pizza in the hospital with his, you know, before <laughs> he left. And and the fact that quite very likely exactly. I'm still alive is the real like the the, the boss is back. It's a it's, real. It's very th- much you know reports of my death have been overstated, isn't it? Kind of line. I am. A bit, I know you don't have a TV in the London studio, but there is one in the Zurich studio. And through the show, they have been on BBC World showing pictures of him doing the leading the Palm Sunday Mass in the Vatican. So he is very much alive still, I can confirm. Indeed, I'm, I've actually no got, white smoke. I've yet. actually got Vatican news on my computer at the moment, and I can see they've <laughs> they've filled um, you know, they've filled the Vatican. St Peter's Square is as full as ever, Enrico. They have um, done, yeah. Enrico- and a very interesting story about him this week as well. I don't know if you saw the sort of fake AI uh, image of him yes. wearing that white puffer coat as well, which is both fascinating, but also I think completely terrifying that something like that can be created yeah. and look so authentic. There was a very good article in Time magazine where they. Uh, went around the different little errors in the image to show you how to spot them. But you just think the vast majority of people, if something like that, you know, particularly in an election, if you mocked a photo of something up like that with Joe Biden or whatever, or Donald Trump, uh, you know, you could quickly spread disinformation through social media. Uh, so, do yeah, do, don't do be fooled by that uh, new sort of puffer style coat of, uh, yeah, this, of this hope in- that we saw. This image that Vinny mentioned is, is really impressive. It comes together in the same week with the images, deepfake too, of Donald Trump being arrested or President of France Macron uh, um, going uh, with the police uh, to face the demonstrations in Paris. And it's amazing and worrying what uh, uh, artificial intelligence can do. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, if you look at these pictures, it looks like he's, he's just about to walk for Balenciaga, Vinny. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> Is there something? Oh, we're going a, to see a that new Milan. influencer. We're going to see that in Milan. Well, he is, isn't he? Though I mean, it's it's quite sweet to use influencer. Although I want to know what the Italian replacement for influencer is going to be. I don't know because it, it sounds like influenza, which is flu. The flu. <laughs> <laughs> but the the fact is, is that he is the original influencer, isn't he? I mean, if you look at the number of people in St. Peter's Square, you know, in front, in St. Mark's Square now, Definitely. you will know that his, his influence is, is, yeah, people, is huge. Uh, people uh, the, about Italy used to say Italians are all Catholics, but churches are empty. Not many people go to church, but Vatican Square, people do go there on Sunday to see the Pope. The climate uh, helps a little bit uh, of Rome. It's a nice way to take a stroll along the river and then go to the Vatican to say hello to the Pope yeah, so uh, the, under the sun. If it was in an industrial estate somewhere, it might not be quite so And, so and maybe in, in, in Britain, uh, maybe grey sky. Um, how much of an influence does does the Pope still have in Italy? I mean, you talk about everybody's a Catholic, but no one's going to church. But, well, but do... Is there a sense that, that he is one of those characters or the role is one of those characters which can bring a nation together? It, it can. I mean, he speaks um, regularly with the Italian president, with the prime minister. It's very important uh, for us. It's a, uh, a matter of pride to have the Pope in Rome. Uh, we must say not only in Italy, but uh, internationally. I mean, uh, uh, what uh, previous popes have done, John Paul II was a, 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 a great role in the fall of communism and then protecting Poland, maybe avoiding Poland being invaded by the 
Soviet Union toward the end of communism. So uh, when you have uh, one or two billion people f- followers, <laughs> it counts. Uh, Vinny, let's move on to another story that you've spotted. We, you mentioned AI a moment ago and the and the and the, uh, the the deep fake Pope in his puffer jacket. Mm. Um, AI has been massively in the headlines this week, where where you have people who arguably are are very good at large-scale social media efforts, are saying that AI is actually something a lot more dangerous than we believed it to be. Yeah, a huge story. I've been away with a sort of quite a mixed group of friends this week, and we've all been at various points talking about the way that AI is changing industries. Lawyers talking about it, how it's being used to really change the way they do what's called discovery. So, sort of, you know, the big investigation work when you've got to go through thousands of documents. Uh, AI being used for that. AI being used, of course, uh, in fintech. I was away with a scientist who was explaining to me how he's already using ChatGPT uh, to sort of do part of the research that he does. Uh, into a new cancer drug. Uh, so this is something that's taking off. And, and around the world, though, we're just wondering, is it all going a bit too quickly? So there's been moves by Italy to ban uh, AIs uh, this week. There's also been this letter, of course, published by uh, people like Elon Musk, uh, like one of the uh, founders of Apple, for there to be a six-month pause. Because I think what you're seeing, of course, that the pattern of big tech in the last year has been Let's ignore all regulation. Let's launch the product, thinking classically here of Uber. We'll get loads of customers on board. And then when the authorities try and step in and regulate us or take it away, then we'll say, oh, but you're going to annoy all these customers who love us. Look at them. Look at the user status. Uh, and, and that's been sort of the model that they've sort of rolled out around the world, this sort of move, move they call it move fast and break things. But when it comes to AI, uh, you know, there are real ramifications, particularly for uh, labor. Of course, it could replace, you know, millions of jobs around the world uh, if it if it if the promises that are being made about its its potential runs true. Uh, and one of the articles uh, that stuck out to me today was in the New York Times. Now, publishers, of course, have been at the sort of forefront of sort of battle when it comes to content and the payment for content on the internet for over two decades now. You know, newspapers have died because of it. They've relaunched as maybe online entities. There's been online publications that rise and fall just with ever so slight tweaks to how the algorithms on social media when it comes to sharing articles are changed. Uh, And the publishing industry uh, is now sort of about to face this new onslaught of, of AI because the way that information currently works, as a basic example it gives in this article, is that if you want to say uh, know something at the moment, you might go onto Google or another search engine and type in, you know, uh, what are the best places to eat, for instance, today uh, in Zurich? Uh, and in the search results, you'll get a bunch of different articles. You might get something by, you know, Condé Nast Traveller. You might get something by Monocle. You might get something by other publishers. And then you click on the links and you read the articles. And as you're doing so, there are ads on the sides of the pages. Uh, and of course, the website counts the traffic and then the advertising model, you know, that's how that, that then funds these companies. But if, for instance, you know, you'd, I say today, okay, where should I go for lunch in Zurich? Can I just type it in to a search engine where these, you know, 
Bing is integrating ChatGPT, uh, and instead of giving me a list of links to publishers, it just gives me an answer from ChatGPT saying these are the best lunch spots, and it and it writes it in this human form that it does. Then that's going to really destroy, and it's pulling that information from articles because don't forget that that ChatGPT is basically looking at the internet at, at, in its current form as it was in 2021. It will just simply scan all those articles that I could have clicked through, work out which restaurants are being cited the most as the best lunch spots, and then tell me. And so that completely bypasses the advertising model. So there is a huge threat for advertisers. And this article goes on to talk about how many big bosses in the industry are trying to get on the front foot of this. They're trying to talk to the tech companies and try and make sure that, you know, the press and publishing and magazines aren't sort of given this final death now from the internet. It's an interesting uh, point that you raise, Vinny, that, that you want to pick up on, don't you, um, Enrico, about the fact that Italy suddenly wants to become the leader in, in controlling this. That wh- Why is Italy suddenly See, jumped we, up? We were talking about Italy saying, do not use uh, um, English words. And now they say, do not use artificial intelligence. Looks like Italy against, is against any kind of modernization or progress uh, or new developments. Uh, um, this m- might be part uh, of uh, this rightist government we have in power right now. Uh, but um, I wanted to say, uh, we, we, all, uh, we are all aware of, of the threats from artificial intelligence, uh, there are also positives, uh, potentiality in it. Uh, today, coming here, I was looking on Facebook, there was a, a post by Bill Gates uh, saying uh, artificial intelligence is going to be a huge revolution, most very important for science, medicine, for many, many other uh, sections of our life. And so it's going to be difficult to find the balance. Uh, maybe it's the same. The same argument up to a point can be made for the digital revolution. I mean, we all say the social medias are bad for certain things, then, but they're also good for others. Or, or the internet, uh, the, the, we say we cannot uh, go, go around the town by ourselves because we all depend from, uh, you know, Google Map. Uh, but, uh, I mean, uh, the digital revolution made everything easier. Now we can decide to go on vacation where we want uh, we go without going to a travel agency, which 20 years ago, Go was was normal for each of us. So we'll have to find the balance between the bad and and the, the good, how to use something that has such a huge potential, maybe the biggest potential we have seen so far. This is true. Yes, it's, it's the jobs market, isn't it? I think the OECD last week said that um, one in five workers are really worried about losing their jobs. But yes. the fact remains... In- including that, journalists. Well, well, yes, and they have tried this. Yes. Um, what, what they've worked out is, journalist Vinnie, I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear this, that journalists like you and Broadcast is fine. <laughs> who do talking yeah. and who don't just report fact might be all right. But if you are a sports journalist, you're in trouble. Mm. Because I do occasionally moonlight as a sports journalist when forced to. Well, um, but uh, I'd be quite happy going. of that. I'd be quite happy if GPT took that away from me. But yeah, I think in terms of broadcast, you and I know, Emma, we often see each other out on the same stories, you know, at random sites across the country. Uh, I don't think that's going to disappear anytime soon. But if you are a strictly print journalist, I think, yeah, there could be, you know, not just in business. You incre- I, I have noticed increasingly you do see market reports that are generated by AI. 
AI, um, anything that's kind of very kind of numbers based, stats based. Yeah, there could be uh, there could be a real change in that industry. The, the joy of storytelling. Uh, Um, Emma, you were mentioning sports. Uh, England is a country of uh, horse racing, of course. And I was reading an article in the New York Times how artificial intelligence is changing the predictions of who can win a race. Uh, newspapers, uh, everybody has a newspaper at the race looking at all the little numbers, how the horse did. But with artificial intelligence, this is much bigger, much quicker, and no need for the newspapers. And you can, uh, there are some people who are using it already and they're winning. Betting shops are quaking at this announcement. Enrico Franceschini and Vincent Macavini, thank you so much for joining us on today's programme. That brings us to the end of Monocle on Sunday. Thanks also to my guests, Christoph Armand, and to our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. That's all we have time for today's programme. Thanks to the producer, Desiree Bandley, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, enjoy the rest of your weekend and look forward to tomorrow when we relaunch, not as Monocle 24, but as Monocle Radio. It's going to be good fun.